So very good to see you again after being gone for a bit. Uh, Gail and I spent, a, first of all, a week uh, vacation, and uh, our oldest kids live in Tel Aviv, and so we uh, spent a week there with them, and then I began leading a tour with Israel with folks from Wood's Edge, and, and that's really more of a spiritual retreat than a, than a tour, a time to seek the Lord together in the land, and it, it was really rich. But I came back sick, like about half the bus, and uh, I'm just about normal now, and all set to go. And uh, it's good to be back with you. Gail and I miss you truly when, when, when we're away. Uh, a couple of things. Oh, yeah, the video this morning. Uh, church, if you were here for the video this morning, to see fifth and sixth graders seek the Lord like that is just too exciting. Wasn't it? Wasn't that just too exciting? That was so good. So good. Uh, I'm just reminded of a couple of things. First of all, Schaefer Hunt is our uh, staff leader in that area of ministry, does a fabulous job, but I, but I, I saw, it must have been dozens of you uh, volunteers uh, with, the, with that team on the uh, retreat, and, and really every Sunday morning here, we've got about, a, I think about a thousand kids, and so there are volunteers who make those kind of ministries possible all over Wood's Edge, and, and if you're part of that, as your pastor, I'm so grateful, and, and even if that's not your calling, children's ministry, your generous giving here at your church home makes possible all those ministries, so thank you so very much for all that you do for the kingdom here at Wood's Edge. Okay, the French king, Louis Fourteenth, was called Louis the Great. Or, at times, he was called the Sun King. He reigned 72 years from 1463 to 1715. He built the extravagant Palace of Versailles. His reign was marked by prosperity and opulence. When he died, and there was this uh, magisterial funeral service at the great cathedral there in France... The whole cathedral was made completely dark except for one lone candle on the, the coffin of Louis XIV. And the whole point of that imagery was that the greatness of Louis XIV. Everybody referred to him as the great king. Now, during this time, with one lone candle in this darkened cathedral, when it came time... For the eulogy, the court preacher by the name of Massilion gets up, goes up to the podium and right by the coffin, and the first thing that he does is he reaches over and snuffs out the candle, and now it is completely dark in the cathedral. And out of the darkness came four words, God only is great. God only is great. You and I will not advance very far at all in the spiritual life until it gets so deep in our soul that God only is great. That we are not the point of the story. We're not the hero in the story. But only God is great. And he alone is the hero of the story. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes so profoundly about pride and, and a little bit too uh, uh, convictingly. 
In one section, he says this. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite it is humility. Now that passage is just a little bit too strong because uh, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I can get pretty bothered by pride in others. And for him to point out that that's a sign that it's pretty bad in me, if it really bothers me and others, you know, that's not too encouraging. But as he points out, nobody is free of pride. Now, pride is so much bigger than just kind of boasting a little bit. That's actually a little bit on the benign side compared to some forms of pride. Pride is everything, the thousand faces that revolve around self and a focus on self rather than a focus on God who alone is great and a focus on other people. All of the forms of pride. Now, this morning, church, we're going to go to the first passage in the Bible that explicitly is going to be dealing with pride. Now, Genesis 3 is part of the first sin because in so many ways, pride is the mother root behind all sin. But in Genesis 11, we really come directly face to face with pride. And our point as always in Scripture, is not to uh, uh, learn the historical narrative and the details, but rather to sit before the Spirit of God, what He has to say to me about obeying Scripture. So the, the, the challenge this morning for you and me, where does pride show up in our lives? If it is the mother root of sin, if it is so displeasing to God, if it is uh, actually sort of obnoxious to other people, and yet we're unconscious of it ourselves. Where is their pride in me? And let's together seek the Lord on that. Would you stand with me, please? I want to read the passage in Genesis 11, beginning at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for martyr. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Church, this is God's holy word. Please be seated.
Church, can I just briefly show you the structure of the passage? It's, it's particularly interesting. You see it up on the screen. On your left, uh, you see three movements from man. It begins with a prologue in unity, and then there's an event, and then there's a resolve. Come, let us make a city. And uh, then there's a pivot point, a fulcrum point in the passage. And the next three movements are God's corresponding answers to the three movements by man. So in verse 1, the prologue, there's unity. Verse 2, they settle in the plain of Shinar. Verses 3 and 4, they have a twofold resolve. Come, then let us make bricks, and then come, let us build this tower into the heavens. At the pivot point, God comes down, and then his resolve, come, let us uh, go see what's going on there. And then he scatters them, that answers to their settling. And the epilogue, it results the judgment of disunity, answering to the unity, the unity of rebellion that we see at the outset. So that is the flow of the passage, and I'll come back to it briefly. Now, as the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. When you see Shinar in Genesis 11, think Babylon, think Babylonia. That's, that's the land that, that it became, and that would be modern-day Iraq. So that's the plain there. Now, when does this occur? We know it occurs after the great flood in Noah. That's Genesis 6 through 9. We don't know how long after that, but sometime way back there, there was this unity um, to build this tower into the heavens. Now, remember that in Genesis 1, God said to the people, fill the earth. Fill the earth. Multiply, fill the earth. That is spread out and, and disperse and fill the earth. After the great flood in Genesis 9, God repeats that command. But yet here in Genesis 11, they're doing the opposite. They're not uh, filling the earth and scattering. They're gathering and congregating because they got fear that uh, they need that for security. They need to band together. And so it's, it's not trusting God, but in disobedience to God's word. Now in verse 3, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. You know, this twofold resolve Come, let us. Come, let us. Now, the tower they are building is known as a ziggurat. Uh, we're found, they found in that part of the world uh, ruins of them today. It looks something like that, you know, these kind of ascending towers. Uh, at the tops of those towers, there were signs of the zodiac, which is a reminder to us that so often in history, these uh, mixture of astrology and, and false religion, um, which is the opposite of trusting God, but looking to the stars to somehow to control things. So their explicit desire is to build a tower to reach up into the heavens. In other words, they want what belongs to God. Now, do you recall in Genesis 3 that the temptation to Adam and Eve was, you know, if you just eat this fruit, you'll become like God. And that same spirit of pride that we saw in Genesis 3, you can become like God, is reflected in their hearts here in disobedience to God. They build this tower uh, up into the heavens. You know, they want what belongs to God. Now, furthermore, we see their pride and their motive for building. That's, that's explicit here. In verse 4, come let, us make, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. I mean, that's explicit. They're not subtle about it. We need to make a name for ourselves. We need renown. We need a reputation. Um, we need to exalt ourselves. 
Now, the big contrast to that is all through the Bible we see that God has not called us to make a name, but to exalt a name. To exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there is something deep in the human pride, deep as part of our sinfulness, to want to make a name for ourselves in subtle and not so subtle ways. And God says, that's not your purpose. That's not your point. You're not the hero. You're not the point. Only God is great. Now, we're going to press in more to the narrative details, and then we're going to uh, look at the application, but just already, let me begin posing the question to you, where does pride raise its face in your life? What, what are the forms that pride takes in your life? It's probably not just bare boasting and, and you know, just blatant uh, uh, arrogance and, and, and boasting, but, 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 but there are a thousand forms, some of them so subtle, about the way that pride takes root in our heart, in the human heart. Where, where does it come in your life and in mine? Now, besides the pride here, behind the pride is their fear that you see in verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They're afraid. they got fear. You know, they don't want to be scattered. They, they want to band together for security. Rather than trusting in God, they want to trust in one another and this tower that they build. And they're probably just so excited about it. You know, you just imagine the, the sense of, of, of self-intoxication. Now, we today can be intoxicated by our grand projects and things that we build, whether or not they are uh, great technological achievements, medical achievements, uh, you know, the latest gadgetry from Apple. And, you know, we can get intoxicated by the things that we do. And um, ultimately, there's a spirit of pride and a spirit of fear behind their actions here. God says scatter. Man says gather. And so we come to the pivot point of the passage, and we see in verse 5, And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. God investigates. Now, keep in mind, church, so often in Scripture, the Bible uses what's called anthropomorphic language, that is, kind of human-type language, just so we can understand. The all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present, sovereign, infinite God does not need to come down to see what man is doing. He knows uh, in a, a moment. He knows everything, and he knows this. But that's just sort of human-like language. But there is also satire and irony here. I mean, think about it. Here's man so proud of himself. He's building this grand tower, and we read after that that the Lord came down to see it. No matter how high man ascends, God has to come down to see his work. The tower is too tiny. It's not that it's too tall, it's too short. God's got to come down to see it. And it's just a subtle clue of, of man in all of his pride is so small compared to the greatness of God. After that pivot point, we see the great reversal, God's resolve to answer man's resolve, God's event action to answer man's, and the, the epilogue to answer man's prologue of unity. By, by the way, this uh, structure that I talked about earlier, uh, that kind of structure is found throughout the scriptures. I, I think about the Gospel of John. It's just uh, all through the Gospel of John, but the prologue, it's just amazing, the literary beauty and the masterpiece of it. 
let me say to you that I'm not insightful enough to see that kind of literary structure, but I know who to read and uh, where I can find it. But that kind of subtle literary beauty and masterpiece is just below the surface all through the Bible. And it's amazing to me. I mean, the Bible alone, if it had no literary structure and beauty, uh, the words themselves are just, you know, otherworldly, but it is just a literary masterpiece. It's just, it's not a human book. Um, all right. Here's God's resolve. Behold, they are one people and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose will, to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So here's God's come, let us. Now, it's a little bit ironic uh, when God says, come, let us, because there's only one God. But this is something that we are seeing from Genesis 1 throughout the Bible, this hint of plurality within the unity of the Godhead. Somehow that within this one God, there is this tri-personality, this come, let us. Now, man's rebellion will continue and escalate. Nothing they're going to do is going to be impossible for them. It will continue and escalate unless there is judgment. And so it is better that they face judgment and separation and they continue in their united rebellion. The atmosphere is not of a rival's jealousy, but a father's concern. They, they, you know, they need, they're about to hurt themselves even worse. Verse 8 corresponds to verse 2. Man in verse 2 settled there despite what God had said in verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Remember, their greatest fear was that they would get separated and scattered, and yet that is their judgment, exactly what happened in their rebellion. Now, can you imagine being there that day? You know, you hadn't read Genesis 11. You don't know about Tower of Babel uh, uh, story, and you're there, and y'all are working hard, and y'all are building this city, and there's only always been one language, of course. And, and then all of a sudden, God puts this judgment on, and he multiplies the languages, and you can't understand one another. And you're wondering, what in the world is he saying? It must have been incredible. God confuses their language. That probably leads to division, and that leads to scattering. And ever since then, really, the multiplicity of languages is a reminder of the judgment of God at the Tower of Babel. And we're going to see there's going to be a, a reversal of sorts to that. So God uh, confuses them. Then verse 9, therefore... Its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now the word for confused, the Hebrew word in verse 9 is Balal, which sounds like, it's not the same as, but it sounds like the word Babel, Balal, Babel. And so, in other words, it's a play on words to say, you know, let's just call this tower that you're building confusion. Confusion. What was uh, uh, outgrowth of their pride became a mark of their humiliation. What you have done has just resulted in confusion and the judgment of God. Now, Babel in Scripture would become Babylonia. And that would become a great, powerful, ungodly, wicked nation that God would use in judgment, and then they would be judged. But Babel, Babylon, Babylonia really became a motif in Scripture for rebellion against God, stemming back from Genesis 11 in our passage. 
Do you recall, some of you, that at the very end of the Bible, in Genesis 17 and 18, there are these two big chapters talking about the, the judgment on Babylonia. And it's not talking about the ancient city of Babylon so much as man's rebellion against God. And in Scripture, by the book of Revelation, there's these twofold cities. There is Jerusalem, the city of God, and there is Babylonia, the city of, of, of man and judgment and rebellion. And uh, what happens with those two cities? In fact, in Revelation 18, verse 2, let me read one verse that says this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, this thought that her, the sins of Babylon are heaped as high as heavens is a recall to Genesis 11, where they're trying to build a city in their pride to reach up to the heavens. But in fact, what we see at the end of the Bible is their sins are what's reaching as high as the heavens. And that brings God's judgment and God's wrath. So, now beginning in the next chapter, in Genesis 11, God does a new thing. Genesis 1 through 11, probably a very, very long period of time. We don't know how long, but God's dealing with individuals of all kinds. And there is a series of rebellion and judgment, rebellion and judgment, rebellion and judgment. After Babel, God's going to do a new thing. He's going to create a special people, the, Israel, the, the, the people of Israel. He's going to call Abraham. He's going to begin a special people. And from them, he's going to bring salvation to the world, including a Messiah and a Savior. So the very next chapter is a huge milestone in Scripture. Now, this focus on Israel is going to last the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, it's going to last through the four Gospels, through Acts 1, and it's going to end in Acts 2 when God begins the church. This great international body, Jews and Gentiles, filled with the Spirit of God. Now, it's interesting uh, in this three milestones in Scripture that the first section ends with Tower of Babel. Then we got Israel, the rest of the Old Testament, part of the New Testament. And then it ends with the church beginning at Pentecost. And that church beginning at Pentecost is going to have several parallels to contrast with Babel in Genesis 11. In fact, Acts 2, in many ways, is a reversal of Babel. Let, let me point out how it's a reversal of Babel. Okay, in the church, in Acts 2, Pentecost, it's a big festival for the Jews... And there were Jews that came from across the empire speaking all kind of languages. So rather than this uh, scattering of languages, now we got a gathering. we got all these gathering of languages to Jerusalem. And then the Spirit of God falls on them, and the believers begin sharing the gospel in, in languages that they didn't understand, but the other people could. So rather than the confusion of languages, now we got the understanding of languages. And in the Tower of Babel, we've got judgment, and here... With the church in Acts 2, we've got salvation. So this is a reversal of Babel. Babel marks the end of a first era. God focuses on the Jews. God launches the church and reverses Babel to kind of mark the moment. And, of course, the moment is marked not so we in the church can make a name, but so that we can exalt a name, exalt the name of Jesus. And so uh, this Tower of Babel has a disproportionate influence in biblical history. Now, church, let me remind you again, our point this morning is not to look at the literary beauty and the historical uh, episodes here and, and just marvel at the beauty. That's not the point. The point is to obey God's Word. 
The point is to sit before, the, uh, sit underneath the, the, the Spirit of God and what He's doing in our life to transform us. The point is not information, but transformation. So let me ask again. We see the pride in Babel. We see the pride throughout Scripture. Where is there pride in our lives that God wants to eradicate in our life? Let me ask you some questions. Do you treat clerks and waiters with as much courtesy as you treat executives and rich people? When someone cuts you off in traffic or beats you to an empty parking space at the mall, do you fume and fuss or do you just smile and go on? Are you offended when someone doesn't give you the due respect or honor that you feel like you need? Would your closest friends say, if they were honest with you, that you tend to be more focused on others or focused on yourself? Are you an attentive and genuine listener? Are you a great listener? Or are you better at talking? Do you drop names of the important people that you know in order to impress others? Do you need to be the center of attention at gatherings? Are you kind of just you know, hoping that the conversation turns to you? Are you largely free of jealousy, envy, and comparison? Are you genuinely glad when good things happen to others? Are you teachable? Can you receive criticism and not be crushed by it? Deep inside, do you think you're better than the folks who dry off your car at the car wash? Are you unconcerned with impressing the people around you? Do you have this deep sense of desperateness and dependence upon God that issues out in a lifestyle of prayer? All of these questions get to the subtle, ugly root of pride in the human heart. And so many others too. Lack of forgiveness rooted in pride. How dare you insult me? So, church... How are you doing with that test this morning? How'd you do? <laughs> Not too good, I assume. Um, I, I did lousy. Um, and none of us is free of the ugly sin of pride that displeases a sovereign God who alone is great. This ugly sin of pride that really people around us can see, and it's not pretty. And we need for God to eradicate it in our lives. And that's not going to happen because we try hard. Oh, God, you know, I've got to stop being so proud. And that's not going to happen because we hear a message and we determine, okay, I'm going to be more humble. The only chance that you and I have got to make any sense significant progress when it comes to humility and pride is to behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ to remember that the infinite sovereign holy God comes down to this planet, God the Son, becomes a little baby, grows up, lives a perfect life, beaten within an inch of his life, is nailed to a cross, naked, and he bears my sin. And that is the most staggeringly humble thing ever. The most humble person in the universe is God. And if 
God would be so humble to come to this earth to die naked on a cross for me, how in the world can I strut around like I'm a big shot? How can we do it? Only God is great. You and I are not the point of the story. And oh God, if that would just get so deep in our soul, so that we would not be racing through life trying to make a name for ourselves and worrying and fretting ourselves to death, but that we would lie low and exalt a name. For the name of the Lord Jesus. After Jesus died, even a death on a cross, we read that therefore God highly exalted him bestowed on him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is what the Bible says, church. Jesus himself, Matthew 23, is what he said. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now that is a spiritual law of the universe. That, that is just as true more true than the law of gravity that if I throw this iPad in the air, it's going to come back down to the earth. Law of, law of gravity. Now, here's a spiritual law of the universe. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You want to be humbled by God? I'd rather not. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you... Uh, Choose not to focus on self in all of its ways, but rather to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and other people, then God will exalt you at the end of the day. God will exalt you. What do proud people look like? They are self-reliant, self-preoccupied, self-righteous. They refuse to submit to God. They don't have broken and, a broken and contrite heart. They draw attention to themselves. They're not servants. They incessantly talk about themselves. They flout God's word. They are overly critical of other people. They are not grateful people. They need no one. By contrast, what do the humble people look like? They are worshipers. They are Jesus intoxicated. They don't focus on self at all. They're self-forgetful. They depend upon the Lord. They surrender to the Lord. They don't look down on others. They're not self-righteous. They don't draw attention to self. They're, they're grateful people. They don't care who gets the credit. They know that they need God. We have a beautiful picture that Jesus gave us in Luke 18 with the proud, self-righteous Pharisee. Oh, God, thank you that I'm so godly. And then over there, there's this tax collector who was known as a sinner, and he's praying, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The very first step. To begin a relationship with God is that prayer right there. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if you've never breathed that prayer, or if that's not been your heart, um, now is your time. Right now is your time. Breathe that prayer. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will save you. He will save you. Church, in contrast to the pride at Babel, God has called you and me, the Christ follower, to lie low 
and exalt the name of Jesus. And there is great freedom. And there is great joy. And we please the Lord when we do that. Stand with me, please. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We don't have a chance. Would you give us grace to walk in real humility that would please you? Lord, would you show us, all of us, what we need to give to you this morning, the expressions of pride? And just respond to him, whatever comes to your mind, whatever forms of pride, give it to him. Lord, I'm so sorry for my extensive pride. And I pray you'd rescue me. And I pray you'd rescue us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.